0: Welcome back to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer with you. We're about two hours from kickoff and uh, yeah, hopefully you're uh, spinning it with us. getting a little um, political information before you get into game day mode. Now, last hour we had the Democrat hour and this hour, the Republican hour, starting with Carl Calabrese. Carl, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Carl, let me ask you uh, what I asked our last uh, two guests. What did you take away from the local elections on Tuesday?
2: Oh, there there were a number of things that were major takeaways, uh, all equally interesting, I think. Uh, First of all, it's obvious that uh, Biden Brown just pulled off a a political masterpiece with winning a write-in vote. I mean, everyone thought that was going to be a really steep hill to climb, and it was, but... They did it very, very smartly. They had a a great strategy, and they implemented the strategy almost flawlessly in terms of educating the public on how to do a write-in. And as I said on a few shows, what the Brown campaign was asking voters to do was not particularly difficult, but it was different. Uh, And and that's always always a challenge, is getting people to do something different. But they did it. He got his organization up and running and humming again, um, which a lot of people— know that if that had happened in June, that that primary would have been won and we never would have had an election for mayor in November. But he did it, uh, overcame a lot of odds, overcame a lot of internal pressure from the Democrat Party and its elected officials to get out. If you recall, there were quite a few very prominent Democrats who very harshly after the primary basically said, Byron, man up, you lost, accepted the, the verdict of the people and move on. Um, he didn't do that. He, he stuck in there. He showed an internal fortitude that, that he has. Many people wondered if he had that internal fortitude, that fire going. He did, and, and he won. And the other takeaway, however, is, and this just caught my attention, the fact that an avowed, self-avowed socialist and member of the Democratic Socialists of America got 41% of the vote in Buffalo. Uh, I was at a talk that Bob McCarthy, the political writer for the Buffalo News, gave the night before election. And he made a very interesting point. He said, you know, Buffalo has always been known as kind of a moderate, conservative, ethnic Democrat um, bastion. And he said, but something happened in the last few years. The first time since 1950, the population of Buffalo has increased. It's increased for two reasons, young people moving back into Buffalo and immigration. And He said the question is, where do these people land politically? Do they fall into the traditional mode of a more conservative ethnic democrat town or are they going to associate with something farther to the left like the democratic socialist of america and he said this election is not only going to tell us who the next mayor is it's going to tell us what the future soul of buffalo looks like and i'll tell you 41 percent. if you would have told me a couple of years ago that i'm a self-avowed socialist member of the democratic social of america could get 41 percent in buffalo I would have said, like <laughs> you're probably smoking the devil's asparagus because that's not going to happen in Buffalo. It did. Um, it, it is a temporary defeat for the Democratic Socialists of America, but it's also a beachhead. And it's a beachhead I think you're going to see them come back to and attempt to make even further gains. Um, as I said, it was in the paper this morning. If I were head of the Democratic Socialists of New York, I would not be putting an out-of-business sign at my party headquarters. I think they're going to come back and they're going, to, they're going to come back and use that 41%. Uh, so those are a couple of the major takeaways. And, you know, like everything in politics, it's evolving, and it will continue to evolve and change, and we'll see, we'll see where the forces land uh, in the next election.
0: Now, on the Republican side of things, we have John Garcia, who is leading right now, very close sheriff's race, and we had Lynn Dixon uh, defeated by Kevin Hardwick. What do you take away from those two elections?
2: Um In both cases, I believe if there had not been a marquee race for mayor in the city of Buffalo, if it had ended in June, um, we would not be waiting on absentee and military ballots for Garcia. He would have won very comfortably. And I believe that if Lynn Dixon wasn't elected on election night, we would be waiting on absentee and military ballots in a very close race. Um, You know, both campaigns were faced with a lot of obstacles. Uh, number one, there's 137, 138,000 more Democrats than Republicans. Uh, that's a huge obstacle. Number two, you had this marquee race for mayor, which uh, did bring out probably 15 to 20,000 more votes than would have occurred had the race not been on the ballot. And being Buffalo, a lot of those Democrat voters come out and vote for mayor, and then they stay on the Democrat line for the down-ballot race. And in Garcia's case, uh, he had two other minor party candidates, which in total took, I think, the last I saw when I went to bed that night was almost 21,000 votes. I think it's even higher now. 80 and 85% of those votes would have gone to him. Uh, and so he ran a masterful campaign to overcome those three obstacles, uh, any one of which could have killed his efforts. Uh, he had no margin for error and ran just a great strategy and tactics. To uh, He's going to win that race. Uh, he's got a comfortable lead. And as we know that absentee ballots tend to track what happened at the polling place on election night very closely. She would have to win 75, 80% of those absentees. And that's a tall order. So uh, that, those are the takeaways on the Republican side. But, you know, Lynn Dixon, uh, Lynn is a good, excellent candidate. She's won twice now for countywide office and both times she got 47%. Uh, you know, if I'm the Republican leadership I want to take a look at both of those races, and I want to drill down into the numbers to ask the question, okay, what do we have to do in the future to get Lynn Dixon from 47% to 50% plus one? There's got to be clues in those numbers that a better run campaign aimed at getting from 47 to 51 in the areas most likely to produce those extra votes could be geared to and could deliver her on election night. So. Those are some of the Republican takeaways that
0: I, I had. You know, looking at other candidates, and this is a question I wanted to ask you on election night, so I'm glad I get to ask you today. Um, we look in Amherst, and you had Brian Culpa running against someone who hadn't been in Amherst for 20 years. Um, do, do you think that the, the, the Republican Party of, of Erie county or the Republican Party of Amherst could have run a better candidate in what used to be a Republican stronghold?
2: Well, assuming they could find a better candidate, and, you know, it's it's a lot easier to find A and A-plus list candidates when you have a strong organization and you've been winning races. Um, usually you have a surplus of them coming to you, saying, I'd like to be your candidate. But when you have lost a lot of races, the town went completely Democrat in the last couple of cycles, uh, you've been losing on a consistent basis, you're having trouble raising money because of that, it's oftentimes tough to find a, a and a plus list candidates it's just the nature of of things uh, you know winning attracts a lot of people a lot of money a lot of good candidates uh, when that's not happening you're struggling as a party and i think you're seeing that in a lot of times in erie county that you know once we're republican strong republican now have turned either marginal or democrat uh, it, it's tough to overcome that and I think that's the situation Amherst found itself in.
0: Were you surprised in Amherst to see Brian Culpa on the conservative line as well as the Democrat line?
2: Not really. No. I mean, there have been lots of Democrats the last uh, five years, 10 years that have gotten a conservative endorsement. And uh, I think he appeals to uh, a lot of the conservative principles um, and made a case for himself that he's a sort a moderate. Um, you know, he may not be the most conservative, but he's certainly a moderate candidate and uh, you know, that's how he's run his town. And so I, I was not surprised to see him get that conservative endorsement.
0: What did you take away in Virginia, where uh, former Governor Terry McAuliffe won his or lost uh, against uh, Glenn Youngkin, who run uh, who ran a campaign, you know, based on, you know, education and, and COVID mandates? What did you take away from that victory? And what um, do you see that for the future in 2022?
2: I, there's so much to take away from that race, Joe. Um, the first thing is, you know, Terry McAuliffe tried to make the race about Donald Trump, and that didn't work. And so I think that I think that's going to be put to bed now going in next year. I think if the Democrats next year in the midterms attempt to make Donald Trump the issue and the focus of the campaign, I, I think that will be to their detriment. Uh, I've been fo- I was following that race since late summer, and I watched the Yunkin numbers get better and better, the, the, the gap. At one point, Terry McAuliffe had a double-digit lead. Everybody had kind of written off Yunkin. And then it started to close. And McAuliffe ran a terrible campaign. First of all, as I said, using Trump as the centerpiece, but he just totally missed the mood of the public uh, with this education issue. You know, it's all Democrats have always been favored by the public over Republicans for how to handle education. That changed on election night because of this radical critical race theory being injected into the schools. And because of the lockdowns and closing schools and not wanting to reopen schools, education became an issue. And it was Yunkin who was speaking to parents about the need to open schools again and more, And just as importantly, the need to get this toxic ideology of critical race theory out of our schools. And McAuliffe totally misread that. Um, he had Obama in who called it a false outrage. We were just drumming up culture wars. Uh, That was not the mood of people in Democrat counties like Fairfax and Loudoun County that were taking to the streets and going to board meetings, school board meetings, demanding that these things be changed. And the Democrats totally misread it, primarily because the Democrats are really beholden to teachers' unions. And we know teachers' unions were not anxious to open up schools again, and we know that teachers' unions support critical race theory. And so they misread it. They went to... They went to the uh, support of the teachers' unions at the expense of parents, and they paid a big, big price for it. And I think it sets forward, going, going forward, Republicans, if they're smart, can become the party of parents, and they can take these issues and run with them, certainly in 2022 and most likely again in 2024.
0: And Glenn Young also did not use uh, former President Trump, did not have him campaign in Virginia. Do you think strategically that could be used in certain districts in 2022 for midterms? Of not using Trump? Of not using Trump, yeah.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, there may be some districts in this country, congressional districts, where Trump will be a big help to a Republican candidate. And there's going to be a lot of them, especially the swing districts, where he will be a detriment because You don't need – I believe next year most Republicans are not going to need Donald Trump to fire up the base of Republican voters. The issues themselves are going to do that. And I've always said the one thing about Donald Trump, nothing can unite the Democrat Party quicker than Donald Trump on the ballot or in the public eye, and nothing puts fire in their eyes to get out and vote than Donald Trump. So Youngkin was smart uh, not to bring him in, uh, to leave him at arm's distance. And uh, he wasn't disrespectful to Trump. He didn't disavow Trump. He just kept his distance strategically. That was very smart. And I think you're going to see a lot of Republicans running for Congress next year in swing districts do the same thing.
0: Now, I know, Carl, you know, I always ask you questions about something years in advance. But does that have any, uh, do you think, does that tell anything about 2024, what happened in Virginia?
2: Uh, It it certainly could. Um, You know, right now... Based on the polls, a majority of Republicans still want Donald Trump to be their candidate in 2024. Uh, I think that's got downsides. I just mentioned the two of them: uniting Democrats and putting fire in the rise, firing their eyes, fire in their belly to get out and vote and have a huge turnout. Um, we're going to have to wait and see how that happens. Uh, what happens with that? We don't know what the field is yet. What other candidates are going to present themselves? We don't know what the issues are going to be. They may favor Trump. They may disfavor Trump. They may favor someone else and disfavor someone else. And it's not until you know, you have all the ingredients uh, of that stew that you know what the stew smells like and can taste like. So a uh, lot to be, you know, a lot of anticipation. We're going to have to wait and see. But, you know, politics is a funny business. And there may be somebody out there on the Republican side right now that's not even being considered uh, a serious candidate who could emerge as such. So, you know, time will tell. But, uh, you know... It, Donald Trump will will decide if he's going to run again, and then the party has to decide, is it in their best interest to nominate him and have him be the the candidate and the titular head of the party, or is it time to move on and uh, look for someone else?
0: Carl, we're going to talk about this with our next guest, uh, Congressman Chris Jacobs, but finally that infrastructure bill got through Congress. What do you think about it?
2: Well, I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, If I had been in Congress, I would have voted against it. For a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, there's all—it's really only a a relatively small percentage of the money actually going to roads, bridges, and airports. But more importantly, you know, in that bill, there's a provision to establish a my a pilot program to test the idea of a mileage tax. And you might you might want to ask Chris if that actually ended up in the final bill, but it was in there for the longest time and. I assume it made it to the final cut. But that would be an interesting question to ask him. If, it, if it's in there, what it will do is it will have this two-year, I believe, a two-year or maybe a three-year pilot program where they will test the idea of charging people a tax on their mileage that they drive. And then the results are going to go to the Department of Transportation to make a recommendation. Well, I think that was enough cover for any Republican to say I'm not voting for it because we know what happens with pilot programs that become programs. And this is not the way we want to go. And this is not what our constituents want. And I'm off of this bill. So I was a little disappointed that so many Republicans went with it, uh, especially if that provision made it to the final bill.
0: That was my next question. Were you surprised that any Republicans um, signed on with this? I believe six in total signed on with this bill. I think it was actually 13. 13. uh, Was the final number. Um,
2: When you look at those numbers, of the 13, six came from New York and New Jersey, which stood to gain a lot of money for mass transit and road projects and things like that so you know all politics being local you can kind of understand the pressures they were under to represent their districts in their state Uh, but like as i said i think any republican could have used that mileage tax pilot program uh, as cover to say i'm just not voting for that
0: And the final question, Carl, will be the same question I I asked our last two guests, and that is looking in Albany, looking toward next year, a primary. Kathy Hochul and Letitia James will both be in the primary. What do you think of that, and would that help a Lee Zeldin, who is also running for governor?
2: Well, I don't think the field is complete yet, Joe. I think uh, uh, de Blasio has announced he's going to be running, and uh, Jumaane Williams has formed an exploratory committee. Um, and Leticia James is already in, those three Democrats, de Blasio, James, and Williams, all come from Brooklyn. That is the best scenario for Kathy Hochul, to have three people from, from the city, from one borough, dividing up that Democrat vote statewide and leaving her the more modern upstate lane to win a primary. In. So uh, for Kathy Hochul, you've you got to say the more the merrier. She may have a problem on her right with, with uh, Tom Swasey, the Um, the congressman, uh, who came to Buffalo, endorsed Byron Brown. Kathy Hochul stayed silent on that. Um, He is staking himself out as the most moderate uh, of all the fields. So he could be be an issue. But right now, the more far-left New York City-based Democrats that get into that primary, the better it is for Kathy Hochul.
0: Carl Calabrese, always great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Great. Thank you, Joe. That is Carl Calabrese. You can hear him throughout the week here on W B E N, and also on David Bellavia's show, which is also right here on W B E N. When we come back, yes, we'll be talking about that infrastructure bill and more with Congressman Chris Jacobs. It is hardline on W B E N. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In, in order, order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. clock at four. Doncic. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported. 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. If your day sounds like... We need the report ASAP. You deserve Medella. If you've persevered through... You deserve this rich golden lager with a crisp and refreshing taste. Or if you overcame... Two more reps, two more. You deserve this ice-cold reward. Modelo, the markable fighter. Drink responsibly, beer imported by Crown Port Chicago, Illinois. That's right, we'll be back here tomorrow morning at... 9 a.m. for BMAS and Beamer, but right now it is Hardline here on News Radio 930 W B E N. And our guest on this Bills game day is Congressman Chris Jacobs. Congressman, good morning. Good morning.
1: Thanks for having
0: me, Congressman. Uh, to to kick things off, what did you uh, take away from some of the local elections here in New York State and around the United States on Tuesday?
1: Well, I was I was down in Washington this week, so certainly I was watching the local news, and a lot was on there was the uh, uh, the the win in Virginia, which was uh, pretty amazing. Uh, Virginia's uh, you know fully a blue state; it, uh, it's changed uh, a lot over the years, and uh, a resounding win from uh, the Republican uh, candidate there, and. Uh, And then also right down the line, the uh, first African-American lieutenant governor, uh, Republican, uh, and uh, first, uh, I think, Hispanic uh, American who's the attorney general, all Republicans. uh, And I believe they did get their their legislative, the House of Delegates, they call it, uh, back Republican. So it was a a wave uh, in in Virginia. Uh, Certainly it was amazing to see uh, how close the uh, New Jersey gubernatorial race was. Uh, you know, uh, that is an incredibly blue state. Um, and uh, uh, so that was another one that, uh, you know, went late in the night, early in, in the morning to find out who actually won that. And then, of course, down uh, back home, uh, what we saw with uh, Mayor Brown uh, winning, you know, uh, it's uh, very rare uh, to, to have a write-in situation like that and, and the mayor to win. Uh, and then um, I, I think they, the, uh, the win of... Uh, John Garcia for sheriff was really an incredible win. He had uh, a lot of hurdles to overcome. He, and he, you know, with uh, not having the conservative line and someone on that line and then also another minor party candidate and then the unprecedented turnout from the mayor race. And, and he was able to overcome all that. Uh, and I'm thrilled for him. I think he is going to be an outstanding sheriff.
0: Congressman, you, you mentioned uh, the Virginia election, which is where a lot of the nation's eyes were. Were you surprised to see Speaker Pelosi right after that talk about the uh, urgency to, for Democrats to spend more?
1: Yeah, it really was incredible, the tone deafness that I thought. I thought that uh, I, would, I would see on Wednesday a real change in tone there. And uh, it, it really is a sign that when you, when you stay in that Washington bubble too long, you really lose a sense of reality. I mean, the the thought that uh, what I heard uh, Speaker Pelosi and AOC say, well, the the problem was the reason that we lost in Virginia was because we just didn't spend enough. And I don't think anybody, anybody in Virginia was saying that Uh, uh, they want, you know, they wanted sanity back in their politics. They didn't want to see their kids used as political pawns with what we've seen in the uh, in the politics going on and i think that is personally for somebody that's been very involved in education for nearly 30 years um that uh, I, I believe education is right now at the forefront uh, uh parents matter uh parents have a right uh to uh, say uh, they sh- always should uh, in the education of their children certainly uh the uh candidate in in Virginia, a Democratic governor uh, candidate, you know, it, it had a, a brief moment of honesty in a debate. One said, you know, I don't think parents should should have a say in the in the curriculum of their children, or something along those lines. And that was, I think, the beginning of his end. Uh, uh, but I think, the, you know, we have as Republicans now the opportunity to really uh, take uh, the reins in terms of education policy, and uh, I hope we uh, go towards the empowerment of parents the empowerment of families, uh, school choice, uh, and and what we've talked about, what I've talked about for a long time, I think this is a real opportunity. And the greatest thing here is that parents are engaged. They're at the school board level. They are not going to take this nonsense anymore. Uh, And uh, I I think the arrogance that we've seen, uh, uh, that uh, parents are not terrorists. Parents care about their kids, and they have every right to do so.
0: Speaking of nonsense, Congressman, we did have the infrastructure bill pass on Friday. Uh, What should we here in Western New York know about this bill that just passed Congress?
1: Uh, I think that, you know, certainly we have infrastructure needs here. And I've talked a lot about infrastructure, as many others are. And, uh, you know, let me say, I I was in August uh, when this – uh, this uh, legislation was announced or uh, a framework and agreement between Joe Biden and a bipartisan group of Democrats, a uh, bipartisan group of senators rather uh, said they had an agreement on a uh, framework agreement on infrastructure. I was thrilled. I was thrilled because they said it was going to be true infrastructure, uh, that it was going to be all paid for that. There would be no additional um, monies loaded onto our national debt. And then, uh, Quickly, as I looked into this, um, I saw that uh, only 25% of what had been proposed was going to go to road and bridge construction, major project construction, which I think most people think of infrastructure, but also that uh, quickly um, we found out that they're paid for uh, was really not. It was a lot of gimmicks. And the Congressional Budget Office, which scores things, uh, came out and said, nope. It's not fully paid for, far from it. And it's going to load another $400 billion with be onto uh, our, our um, deficit or our debt. And our debt is at the highest level, the highest level it has ever been in our nation's history right now. Uh, so those are two things I was very, very concerned about and uh, gave me a lot of pause. But really uh, what what really the, the terrible thing here is almost Right after the agreement was made, uh, that Biden walked out with the senators. Uh, an- another meeting came, a press conference with Pelosi and Biden, and they said, "Well, we have an agreement on this infrastructure bill, but only if we also pass the 3.5 trillion reconciliation, the socialist wish list uh, legislation, uh, which AOC and Bernie Sanders had been counting." Uh, so they really, at that point in time. Said we are holding infrastructure hostage, and it's only going to be passed, basically making it one big bill, and that's really what happened. This back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and now we're talking about they passed the the, the rule, the first uh, out of for the reconciliation out of Congress in the middle of at one in the morning. The the largest expenditure ever in the history of our nation was passed at one in the morning, so people couldn't see it. Um, and now that's going back to the Senate. And so, you know, and this is going to dramatically increase the uh, taxes, the spending, uh, the expand, major expenditure of government into our lives. Uh, and as uh, Joe Manchin has mentioned, the concern is we're going to have all these new entitlements, uh, all these obligations that we're going to do all these things for people, yet both Social Security and Medicare are on the cusp of being bankrupt. Uh, So, you know, we're really heading down a very alarming path. That's why uh, I, you know, was a no vote on this. Uh, Certainly, um, I I believe we need to have a a real discussion on infrastructure. But uh, this uh, major expansion of government into our lives and and, uh, just dramatically increasing the debt that we have, that I do not believe is sustainable, I think we're heading towards, uh, you know, a... A kind of a bankruptcy at, at some point in time where we just can't, you know, this is about not me and not you. It's about our children and our grandchildren who are going to be saddled with this debt uh, for generations to come. Our, our, we will have a country that will not be able to compete like we should, to do the things we should, um, and to defend ourselves like we should. So that was my concern. Uh, and that's why where I was on my vote.
0: Now, this question is from our last guest, uh, Carl Calabrese. He was wondering: Is the mild mileage tax study still a part of the bill that passed?
1: Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The mileage tax study is. Uh, uh, so, you know that that's there's a lot of questions on that, and how intrusive that will be. Um, you know, there's 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 a lot of uh, social engineering, if you will, and a lot and both these bills uh, and a lot of things they want to do that. Uh, I think of people, as they become aware of it, will um, will, will be uh, more concerned as time goes on.
0: Now, another thing that uh, happened this week, Congressman, was uh, you co-sponsoring the legislation to prevent payments to illegal immigrants. And it seems like we're getting a lot of uh, mixed messages from the White House in what this actually is. Uh, what is what is the payments to illegal immigrants and what was the bill that you co-sponsored?
1: You know, and I will say too, in the infrastructure bill, there's hardly anything uh, on s- uh, securing the uh, southern border. And then, of course, the reconciliation bill, uh, the 3.5 trillion dollar wish list, or it, it, you know, might go down to uh, 1.73 or 2 trillion or whatever because they keep playing with the numbers. But uh, it's a the they amnesty for millions, and also no no securing of the southern border, which is continuing to be the crisis. Yeah, we, we, I think we were all shocked when we heard this, that there was settlement negotiations between the administration uh, and uh, those uh, individuals that entered this country illegally um, settling because of the situation that they had, they had brought themselves into by illegal entering the country. And the settlements were going to average out about $450,000 uh, per person. And uh, so, you know, we've spoken up on that, and I, 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 I'm sure you're aware that when he was first asked, the, the president said, "No, no way, we, we wouldn't do something like that." And then, the ACLU, uh, which is party to the settlement, said, "Well, uh, uh, President Biden better talk to his Department of Justice because we are in negotiation." So they are doing this. Uh, I've uh, introduced legislation to prevent it. Um, you know, th- this is uh, far more than uh, a family would get if their loved one died in battle. <laughs> so we're going to pay those that entered the country illegally $450,000, and uh, a hero who fought on behalf of our nation, uh, their family would get far, far less. So this is wrong in so many ways. It's also wrong because it's going to incentivize. Um, if we, ha- It's frustrating that we don't learn or the administration doesn't seem to learn that the drug cartels that deal with the um, illegal migration coming up from the southern border uh, respond to our bad policy. So if we start offering $400,000 settlement uh, for uh, family situations that have come here, um, don't you think they're going to drive more so they get, get that settlement? Of course they are. That's what they've been doing. This is all about money. Um, and uh, so this is also bad because it will cause more human suffering of individuals coming and being used, coming across the border.
0: Uh, on your on, on the legislation you co-sponsored, has there been any members of the other side of the aisle uh, that are interested in joining into this, or is it strictly party lines?
1: I would have to check that. My, my understanding at this point in time is we do not have any uh, Democratic uh, co-sponsors. Um, I, I would think that the only place I would hope is that We've seen some Democrats in Texas speak up on the southern border issue because it's so profound in terms of how it's impacting their communities. So that's where I would see it, but I don't think I have seen it at this point in time.
0: Congressman, uh, we know you keep your eye on the southern border, and uh, we, we've heard not only of you know, people continuing to come over the southern border, but also of flights uh, by the administration into New York State. Um, what can you tell us about those two things?
2: Yeah, we we've, I've
1: also parted of the you know, correspondence trying to get some more information about these kind of covert flights uh, bringing uh, illegal immigrants uh, into the interior of the United States, which we've known is happening, but now they're doing it secretly. And and I know there was one that came into, I believe, Long Island area. Uh, so, again, this is uh, this is, you know, they're saying one thing at the press conferences and then clearly doing other things uh, to, to the country and uh we need to continue to fight against this, and I intend to do so, uh, whatever fiber I have. But also we need to highlight the lying and the hypocrisy that we're seeing from this administration. Uh, and it's really getting to a heightened level. And uh, I think more and more people are, are getting uh, concerned about this. We're seeing at the polling that, that uh, it's not only hardcore Republicans that have concerns with this administration now, but Joe Biden has lost the faith of nearly every independent and a lot of Democrats as well.
0: We also see the, um, the mandate for large employers um, getting challenged, not only in court, but by some members uh, in Congress as well. Uh, do you see that going through, or do you think that it's got enough power in DC to uh, not become a law, the mandate on large employers for vaccination?
1: Well, I, I think the Biden administration is seen to ignore uh, things we've seen this on numerous occasions when they know full well they are overstepping their constitutional prerogative. They do it anyway. And, and so I think that our best hope here is what we're seeing in the courts. And I think that it was a real stretch. I think it is a real stretch where what we're seeing um, in the administration demanding, uh, demanding uh, imposing the mandates on uh, employers like Moog Uh, because they are uh, contractors the government contractors. And I think that is on very shaky constitutional ground. But when we're talking about purely private contractors to try to use OSHA to do that, I think that's on very shaky constitutional ground. So I'm frankly hopeful on this lawsuit. I'm glad they enacted the stay because the damage is significant, so they should have done that as they deliberate. Uh, But I think we have a very good uh, constitutional legal position, and I'm thrilled that the court took its first step to stay this nonsense. Uh, Let's keep in mind, we've made major progress on COVID. The COVID rates are down dramatically. Uh, We need to continue to just educate people uh, about uh, their choice. Uh, But mandates and lockdowns are ineffective, I I believe, counterproductive. And I I really um, wish, but I'm not optimistic that the uh, the administration decides to take a different
0: tack. Congressman, I, I apologize. I did not ask you about this when asking you to come on the show. So if you have no comment, I, I completely understand. Uh, but there's been a lot of talk about the Bill Stadium and this agreement to get a new Bill Stadium. Have you kept your eye on that? And where do you think a new Bill Stadium belongs?
1: I, I'm really, I, I certainly have kept my eye on it. Uh, I'm not in, privy to negotiations. That would be the county executive, the governor. Uh, and um, and of course the bills. Uh, I really and my main focus is uh, is that they remain here. Uh, that I do believe we need a new stadium, uh, and that I believe it needs to be a partnership uh, and and uh, with fairness on both sides. But uh, I just think we are so lucky to have the bills here to have a good ownership team. Uh, ownership. In the Pagoulas. I mean, let's keep in mind uh, it wasn't that uh, long ago when Ralph Wilson was, had passed away that we were so so concerned uh, that they would get sold, and because of the capital gains or estate tax impact, uh, that there was no way they could stay here. And uh, so we're in a much much better place. Of course, our team's a lot better too. Uh, but I am focused, and I've you know certainly conveyed uh, to all the parties, you know, I'm ready and willing to help. Uh, uh, to make sure that the deal can happen, uh, and uh, I, I will leave the decision where uh, to the other parties. But, you know, this is a regional team, uh, and uh, the most important thing is they're here, and
0: they're here to stay for the long term. Well, Congressman, with an hour till uh, kickoff, I'll let you go. I thank you so much for joining me this morning. Okay, thanks so much. That is Congressman Chris Jacobs joining us. And that is Hardline for November 7th, 2021. We'll be back here next week. The Bills play in an hour and five minutes, of course. Go Bills. Let's hope. uh, I've had a bad sports weekend. So let's hope the Bills can turn that around in Jacksonville today. Hey. We'll be back here tomorrow with our award winning lineup on WBEN, starting with A New Morning with Susan Rose and Brian Mazarowski, BMAS and Beamer, David Bellavia, 10 to 2, Tom Bowerly, 2 to 6, and Buffalo's Evening News with Tom Puckett to wrap up your day. Have a great Sunday. Go Bills. We'll talk to you tomorrow here on WBEN. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News.